0: From movie set to multiplex, it's the business of film with James Cameron Wilson.
1: My mother thanks you, my father thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog too. I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. This is Simon Rose. You join me for The Business of Film with a nearly perfect James Cameron Wilson, who will be telling us uh, how the films are doing at the
0: UK box office. Oh, isn't that so nice to be able to say that again, James? It certainly is. Although nobody, one of my favourite films, has slipped out of the top 10 to number 11, starring Mm. Bob Odenkirk. And I think most people probably don't know who Bob Odenkirk is. I know you do. And the reason I mentioned that is because he turned he's turned into this amazing action star at the age of 58 and we were discussing last week how old you brought up the name charles bronson how old no, no, you charles you brought
1: bronson? up Bron- you brought up bronson
0: i didn't did i think bring up was. bronson yeah, okay. yeah yeah well you were wondering how old he was when he yes. started the death wish franchise yes and we didn't get round to looking it up but he was 52 when he started <sighs> spring and- chicken compared
1: to some of these action heroes now
0: Well, nowadays, yes, indeed. But back to the chart at hand, and it's very exciting. We have a new film at number one, which is a pandemic box office record with £6 million, 14,000, including previews. A film called Fast and Furious Nine, which is eclipsing the previous pandemic record achieved by Tenet with £3.8 million, which is quite a difference. Yeah, and that yeah, £6 million figure at 594 screens is fewer than Peter Rabbit 2's, which came in at second place with £832,000. So F9, as it's known by the nerds, clocked up a 10125 quid per screen average. This is looking very rosy, Simon. Mm. You see what I did there? Impressive, I did. Yes, yes, James. Uh, (laughs) But is the film any good? Ah, indeed. Well, funnily enough, I have managed to see it. Um, Fast and Furious 9 has a lot of explaining to do. Uh, And once it starts, it cannot stop. Tyrese Gibson and Ludacris ponder on how they can still be alive after all they've gone through. The others in the Toretto team are amazed that Gibson survives with his life after an armoured truck falls on his head. Han, who we last saw in Fast and Furious 6, incinerated in his car, now turns up in Edinburgh in awfully good nick. The new film, uh, the last one, and the best, in my opinion, in the franchise, grossed, listen, 1200000 and thirty-six million dollars. Which one was that? Which one was that? Six. Uh, that was eight. Eight. Okay. One billion two hundred and thirty-six million dollars. Wow. And that you think was the best? Remind me, James. But for the first sort of few films in the franchise,
1: it, I mean, you know, it, they did well, but nobody considered them to be good films. And then suddenly, at one stage,
0: suddenly you were getting quite respectable people saying, "Oh, you should probably watch this." They have got better and better. Indeed. Uh, The new film opens in 1989, where we are privy to, believe it or not, a high-speed race. Actually, on a race track, Mm. the man in in the hot seat who is killed turns out to be Jack Toretto, the father of Dom Toretto, played by Vin Diesel in six of the Fast and Furious films. And in this extended prologue, which also features Michael Rooker, We discover that Dom has a brother, a sibling he fell out with for reasons to be be explained five hours later in the film. In fact, there is a whole lot of explaining going on, which does rather slow the action down. When we return to the present day, we see Dom teaching his little son how to fix a tractor. Along with his wife, Aleti, played by Michelle Rodriguez, he has reached some kind of nirvana, albeit at some cost. And so on a beautifully sunny day, when a car approaches, he instructs his son to hide and reaches for an arsenal of high caliber weaponry. In spite of his hideaway in the middle of nowhere, he is still on edge. But when he sees that his visitors are the aforementioned Tyrese Gibson Ludacris and Natalie Emmanuel, he welcomes them like the family that they are, only to find out that they wanted help, help that he cannot give. We're not, we're not on call anymore. He tells them solemnly. It transpires that Mister Nobody, not to be not to be confused with Bob Odenkirk, played by Kurt Russell had arrested the criminal mastermind and hacktivist Cypher, played by Charlize Theron, but his plane, with Cypher on board, had been intercepted by rogue agents and the plane forced to crash somewhere in Central America. Letty is eager to help her former comrades on wheels and speeds off after them, leaving Dom Toretto Vin Diesel alone with his son. But of course, Dom changes his mind. And when he turns up in Central America, he and the others find themselves under fire from a military unit and are chased into a restricted area, which turns out to be a minefield. It's amazing they survive, but they do. And in time to discover the narrative backbone of the new movie. On board the remains of Mr. Nobody's plane, they discover part of a device that makes up the Ares project, a weapon that can tap into the world's cyber infrastructure. That's a novel thought. And if that is not frightening enough, the man behind the incursion is none other than Jacob Toretto, the brother that nobody knew Dom had. And playing Jacob Toretto, is none other than John Cena, 16-time World WWE champ and about the only actor on the planet, now that Dwayne Johnson is out of the picture, who can make Vin Diesel look like a matchstick. (laughs) Of course, the ridiculous plot isn't really that important. It's just a device to hang on a series of seat-wetting car chases and stunts that get more and more OTT by the movie. But because the plot is so ridiculous, Fast and Furious 9 spends an inordinate amount of time trying to explain everything away, which I don't think it needs to do. I think audiences will come in willing to suspend their dis belief. I have to say that like the rebooted James Bond brand and the Mission Impossible films, the Fast and Furious franchise is one series that seems to get better with each episode. The last, Fast and Furious 8, I thought was an exhilarating, thrilling, funny, and occasionally frightening express ride of undiluted escapism. So high expectations were resting on F9. But how could it top the previous installment, particularly as its release date was put back a whole year? And it's certainly one film you would want to see on the biggest screen available. However, I just wish it hadn't tried so hard to be so much bigger than the last one. Just as the 007 series reached its nadir with Moonraker, so F9 goes so over the top that one just loses any interest in this family of daredevils. that that Vin Diesel as the heart and voice of the series has tried so hard to make us care for and to believe in. But if one is willing to suspend such a mountain range of disbelief, there is a lot to be genuinely excited about. There are stellar cameos, exotic locations. We are taken to London, the Caspian Sea, Thailand, Tokyo, Copenhagen, Edinburgh, and Tbilisi in Georgia, I was perfectly engaged, even while my mind was increasingly boggled by the mounting coincidences. coincidences. And there are two or three jaw-dropping moments of vehicular carnage. But the film would have been even better with all the explanation just jettisoned Mm -hmm. and the repeated exclamations of, I don't believe it! And you've got to be kidding me, junked along with it. Mm -hmm. My favourite scene is when the Essex-born Natalie Emmanuel, the team's very own computer hacker par excellence, is forced to learn to drive on the streets of Edinburgh on her own while a fight is going on in the back of the truck she is driving into various parked cars but if that wasn't enough the truck is powered with electromagnets which is so powerful that they can suck other cars off the sidewalk I was so grateful that I have never seen Edinburgh with so few cars parked on the street <laughs> and I know Edinburgh okay
1: James it, thank you and um, probably a good moment then for us to just take a quick breather
0: sharing ideas about money This is Share Radio.
1: This is Simon Rose in conversation for the business of film with James Cameron Wilson on Share Radio. So,
0: James, uh, where do we go now? Let's fast and furious. Nine. Which is breaking box office, a pandemic box office record. So we'll rattle down the rest of the chart with Peter Rabbit 2, which was at 2 last week, is at 2 this week, down 26%, with a total of £16.4 million. Pounds. At number three, we've got In the Heights, which was at three, it's still at three, down 36%, with a total of £2.4 million. A Quiet Place Part 2 has not moved either. It's still at number four, with a total of £9.6 Cruella is at number five, which was at number five last week. Number six is, ah, we have a change. The Mm -hmm. Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, which I thought was dire, has dropped from first place to number six, down a hefty, 73 percent so obviously people are listening to this program which has a total of 2.6 million in the bank the conjuring the devil made me do it is down 40 percent and we have a new film at number eight called supernova Mm. i've been looking forward to watching this ever since i was sent the dvd last december or maybe it was even november but it's only being released now i think studio canal the distributor, was hoping to capitalise on the awards buzz and get serious bums on Mm -hmm. seats post-lockdown. In the event, the film was overlooked at the Oscars and at other major ceremonies, and I think I can see why. But I do have to ask you, Simon, have you seen Supernova? Uh,
1: I haven't, no. I've heard of it, and I keep hearing adverts for it
0: on the radio. Okay. well, on on many levels, it is such a highly commendable drama with superlative performances from... Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci as a couple taking a road trip around the Lake District. At first they do little but grumble at each other with Stanley Tucci as a successful writer trying to navigate the roads with an old-fashioned map on his lap, while Colin Firth as a successful pianist prefers more up-to-date technology. What's commendable about the film is that Firth and Tucci's sexuality is taken as a given and is never actually alluded to. They are a couple who just happen to be gay. Mm. More problematic is that Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci are well-known heterosexual actors. And I never got over the feeling that I was watching two familiar straight stars playing gay lovers. There was an enormous backlash against the joyous, witty, feel-good musical The Prom, which I loved. Uh, available, I,
1: remember, I remember you talking about it, yes.
0: Well, available on Netflix because yes. James Corden was a heterosexual actor playing a homosexual, but the film was all about tolerance. And all the other principals in The Prom uh, were gay. And mm-hmm. Corden is pretty camp himself. It didn't really bother me. It did, though, while watching Supernova. A supernova is a star that, once exhausted, explodes emitting a nebula that lasts for hundreds of years. It's an apt title once you understand the characters, both of whom are keen stargazers and the story surrounding Tooch's fate. He is suffering from dementia and is keen to go on this particular journey with Firth while he can still remember who he is. Mm. The other difficulty in watching Supernova, I found, is its theme of mental deterioration, a subject also covered brilliantly by the father, which is currently also out in cinemas, and by such recent endeavours as The Roads Not Taken, What They Had, Still Alice, Michael Haneke's Amour. In fact, it wasn't that long ago that we witnessed another couple on a road trip in a Winnebago in The Leisure Seeker, in which Donald Sutherland was trying to come to terms with his dementia. However, that shouldn't take away from what is a well-meaning Earnest drama, obviously made from the heart by Harry McQueen, who wrote and directed. As far as I'm concerned, there should be just as many films dealing with Alzheimer's or whatever as there are films dealing with demonic possession, which are to a penny. It's a very real issue, and it needs to be addressed in different ways by the cinema, as well as by television, the theatre, and on the written page. But. I really never did believe in what was happening on the screen in Supernova. And I also found the cliches annoying, such as when we discover that the couple have a dog. So we cut to a shot of a dog, which immediately whines for the camera. And it's not a good film when you see an animal and it makes the noise that you expect it to make.
1: What was that super Canadian film? I really can't remember. This is not, I think... I hope. Um, <laughs> indication of my my memory's decline. But there was a wonderful Canadian film about Alzheimer's oh. about ten years ago, the female writer director. It'll come to me in some and There some are quite stage. a few of them. Oh, okay.
0: But uh, it's... it's a good look, it's a good looking, it's a well-acted film that you can't help but admire. If you like the sound of Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci bickering at each other for ninety minutes, it, it is better than that. The very right. tasteful music by Keaton Henson. I just couldn't really believe it. And as I say, there are some surprises which I won't, uh, cliches which I won't go into. Okay. Uh, Where now? Okay. We are at number nine, where we have Doctanian and the Three Musket Hounds. Right. If you think the title is a hoot, then maybe you will be able to stomach this Dumas for Dogs, which is a computer animated trifle from Spain. At 10, we have the father down a staggering 60%. With a total of 1.6 million and the aforementioned nobody, which I did really fun, find enormous fun, down 72%, as I say, probably because people just haven't heard of Bob Odenkirk. But I, I, again, would... I'm, I, I rather doubt that, given that he was in Breaking Bad
1: and then that massively successful um, TV spin off, Better Call Saul, um, you'd think people would know him incredibly well. But I don't know. He ain't Vin Diesel. He's not. Well, no, that's true. And I do, I wonder if people are going, you know, much like the the days of the Great Depression, going for the out-and-out out entertaining movies rather than the ones that might actually require them to use their brain or think.
0: But nobody is just entertainment, pure esca- escapism. It's much more fun than Fast and Furious 9, right. yeah. if people knew about it. Yes, well. That's... I mean, it's very, very violent, I should add. It is a 15. I mm.
1: anyway, thought it numbers... should be more? Yes, I seem to remember.
0: Well, it's on the far end of 15, nudging into 18, I would have said, some of the sequences involving knives. Uh, At number 17, we have a new release, which I missed last week, called In the Earth, which is at 73 screens. It's been a red-letter year for sound design. First, we had Sound of Metal, the story of a man who suddenly loses his hearing, brilliantly played by Riz Ahmed. And then, of course, we had A Quiet Place Part 2, the Godfather 2 of horror sequels, both of which use sound as a narrative device, reminding us how important silence, as well as music, is to the cinematic experience. Now comes Ben Wheatley's in uh, In the Earth, which explores sound in some very interesting ways. I know that the military have been studying certain sound frequencies as a form of weaponry, and Ben Wheatley has obviously been doing his homework. Wheatley's career kicked off with the crime drama Down Terrace and then the small but perfectly horrible horror film Kill List, which he followed up with the critically acclaimed black comedy Sightseers. I adored. You adored that? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, gradually his budgets have increased and his artistic net extended with the likes of the starry dystopian allegory High Rise, the starry action comedy Free Fire, and the recent reworking of Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca for Netflix. Simon, if you're stuck in the middle of a large wood, what would you say would be your most vital accessory? Torch. A torch, if you're stuck in the middle of the wood. A dark wood? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. Well, having seen In the Earth, I would say a pair of shoes. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> well, I don't want consider that
0: accessory, but okay. okay well, I'm assuming you, you, I'd have a pair. Well, I know. You can run naked through a forest, but you can't run naked without shoes. The opening shot of In the Earth is a series of rocks being split in order to fashion sharp points, hmm. which are then lovingly, planted beneath the undergrowth. These could prove very nasty for those without footwear, which later on in the film is explained. In the Earth explores a number of fascinating subjects. Our current pandemic, living off the land, the fragility of our environment, and nature clawing her way back onto the world stage, which brings us to the sound design. In the Earth is set entirely in dense woodland and features Joel Fry from Danny Boyle's Yesterday and Disney's Cruella as our protagonist, Martin, a scientist and city boy who is your typical English everyman, slightly awkward, easily embarrassed, and somebody who takes everything at face value. With the pandemic in its third wave, Martin is called to a government-controlled outpost in a remote woodland. There he is greeted by fellow scientists, sprayed down and injected with a vaccine, which, all of which he accepts with a laid-back scientific trust. In the cabin, he notes a rather strange artwork on the wall and is told it's of Parnag-Feg, a local woodland spirit. Martin dismisses it as so much folklore, Although his guide Alma, Elora Torchia, is less glib. Describing the locals in the woods around them, she says they would do well to be afraid. It is a hostile environment. And so shortly after 5.30 the next morning, Alma and Martin set off for a two day trek to a research camp even deeper in the forest. It is here that Ben Wheatley comes into his own, recreating this hostile environment in all its ominous intent with trees twisted into hideous Francis Bacon shapes, mist hanging the air like a threatening miasma and the noise of the forest adding that extra special feeling of unease, a roar of birdsong, the supernatural scream of foxes, the incessant clatter of the woodpecker and the creak of trees wrestling with each other. But this is not the only way that Ben Wheatley uses sound to unnerve. That comes later and is not for me to say. However, you may recall reading that the military has been developing different frequencies with which to undermine undermine its enemy. And of course, there was that incident in Havana, Cuba, where US diplomats fell ill due, it has been suggested, to what has been quoted as directed pulsed radio frequency energy. It seems as if Wheatley, who also wrote the screenplay, along with producing and editing the film, uh, has been reading his newspaper. He is also shoehorned in the theory proposed by Suzanne Simard, a professor of forest ecology. And I read about this, who discovered that trees can communicate with each, with each other through a network of roots and fungi or fungi. All this is thrown into a narrative stew that at times were called Deliverance, Wolf Creek, and more with a particular Nicholas Rogue influence. Some of it is very nasty, and what actually happens in them, the woods is a mix of science and folklore, or maybe it isn't. It is certainly not for the faint-hearted. It's constantly intriguing, and was all shot in 15 days during lockdown, which I think in itself is something of a feat. I was most intrigued to find out where the film was actually shot, because this is a very big forest. I was surprised to learn that it was filmed on the Culden 4 estate, just outside Henley-on-Thames. So that's the magic of cinema for you. It's very (laughs) gripping and it's very original. James,
1: thank you very much. That's In The Earth. We also discussed Supernova and Fast and Furious 9. James, we'll be back with more uh, UK box office at the same time next week.
0: Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Easy, Miss. I've got you. You, you've got me. Who's got you?
1: <laughs> I am not an animal. Where the devil are my slippers?